Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. They've worked out that you you will be slowly filling up with these micro particles of plastic, which comes from all the plastic waste, all those unnecessary water bottles and things that they throw into the sea and eventually get ground down to this this sort of dust that mm. never disappears. Mm. Someone's estimated that it, and, you know, it's like eating, if you eat mussels for a year, it's like uh, eating a, a credit card every year or something. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Professor Tim Spector, OBE, is back on the podcast today to talk about Foods for Life. Yes, this is a book that is a huge resource of lots of information from everything to do with the environmental impact of foods, food fraud, allergies, deceptive labeling, ultra high processed food, as well as a huge section on the benefits of everyday wonderful foods. Everything from grains to berries to cheeses, meats, fish, whether we should be eating fish at all, whether we should be actually going 100% plant-based. These are all things that I master a lot about and things that Professor Tim has put in his book. Foods for Life is a fantastic resource. You can also watch this podcast on YouTube as well and subscribe whilst you're there. It's a great low-cost, zero-cost way, actually, of supporting the podcast. I'm trying to put more content out on YouTube as well as more recipes as well that we're going to be investing in next year. And also, you can subscribe to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter every single week. I send you recipes. I send you something to put a smile on your face. I send you some mindfully curated content that will help you hopefully have a healthier, happier week. And if you want to take your health to the next level, then I would definitely check out my app, The Doctor's Kitchen, that you can check out on the App Store. Make sure you try the seven-day, no, it's actually a 14-day free trial, actually, um, as well as all the different filters that we have for different health goals and all the extra features that we are building in the background. And one of those, yes, I'm sorry, Android users, it is taking so long, but it will be with you guys soon as well. I really hope you enjoy this podcast episode with uh, Professor Tim. It's slightly longer than usual, but there is just so much information out there. And I think we should really do a part two because there's so many more things that I do want to talk about. But if I could summarize our conversation, it is really about getting more polyphenols in your diet something that I've been banging on about for years now. It's all over my first book as well as my next book as well. You want to try and get as much diversity in your diet and you want to have largely plant-based diets as well. And actually, the new research suggests that you can support yourself protein, fiber-wise and nutrition-wise with a fully plant-based diet if you choose to as well. I really hope you enjoy listening to this week's episode and uh, please do enjoy. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tim, uh, great to have you on the show again. Really excited about your book and uh, getting into it. It's great to be back. Looking forward to our chat. Good. It's weird because we've been chatting for about half an hour. And so to do that, like presenter, like, oh, good to see you. <laughs> we should have turned the mics on. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, look, we, we were talking a bit about obviously what you're doing with Zoe, the uh, advent of these new sort of markers. Obviously, Zoe uses microbiota testing and, and uh, continuous glucose monitors. I asked you a question a bit about, you know, what other things that you think we could be using maybe five, 10 years in the future to further personalize our diets. And I think that'd be a nice sort of way to start a discussion. Then we can dive into some of the research done with these different foods because the the book is fab. The reason Zoe came about was that ideas about the gut microbes coincide with the technology to measure it, you know, quickly and relatively cheaply that was never possible before. And measuring the effects of food on the body came about because we had the technology of these glucose monitors. Mm So um, we're able to look at fat levels at the moment with a skin prick test and a dry blood spot, which people can do at home. So this is all totally new technology combined with artificial intelligence, which again, wasn't around. So you've got to combine the ideas around how what we want to do in, in terms of measuring the body with what's available in the technology or mm-hmm. try and push them in that direction. And there's huge interest in wearables at the moment. You know, everyone's measuring heart rate variability yeah. and sort of VO2 max. And you've got these other you know measures that are trying to get hold, such as met- metabolism and uh, continuous blood pressure monitors. Mm-hmm. And it's all evolving super fast as well as, you know, we all, we all think that Apple are going to come up with a, you know, a glucose watch yeah. that's going to tell you uh, in, in five years what's in it. I'd love to see somebody uh, designing a, a fat monitor, mm. um, but which I mean lipid monitor, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> rather, yeah. rather than an alarm that goes off when you've, <laughs> your weight's gone up. Yeah. But the, so at the moment, you know, it'd be lovely to track triglyceride levels after a meal, mm. see what that trace really looks like, without having to stab yourself 10 times every day. Yeah. And that would be revolutionary because it would also not only tell you how you respond to fats, how quickly you get them from your body, really in even more precision than we've got now, but it would also tell us about inflammation after meals. And I think this is where the sort of things start to meet, this, this common idea that we're trying to 
get that inflammation down. And so if people could say, oh, I'm really controlling inflammation, it wouldn't matter how they do it. Yeah. It could be things like meditation, it could be sleep, it could be all these things. Yeah. To me, that would be the coolest um, test to have. So if anyone is out there uh, and they <laughs> want to uh, invest a few million, yeah. uh, apparently there are chemists out there who can put this stuff together relatively easy, you know, just a, 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 a triglyceride or a lipid marker uh, or one of these markers of inflammation. Yeah. So to me, that would be yeah that the next step. But I think people have seen that, you know, companies like Abbott that have made billions out of their mm. uh, it, fairly simple invention that started off being a niche market and ended up everybody uh, wanting one yeah. shows the huge potential. Totally, I definitely see that. And you know, fatty acids in the blood, uh, insulin responses after consumption of certain foods. Um, and inflammation uh, as well. Those are things that I think if everyone knew, we could really further further personalize our diets and our lifestyles. There was something that went viral on uh, Reddit the other day that I saw. It were it was um, a couple, and they were monitoring what improved and what worsened their sleep. And so they were both trying both the same thing. Oh, I, I was, saw that. Yeah. Did you see that? that was cool. One was trying meditation. Somebody was trying like the Calm app. Someone tried uh, a supplement. Some of them, uh, I think they, they both tried the same thing, magnesium. And they had near opposite effects for like some of the same interventions. So it just shows you how personalized you have to be to have the desired outcome. Yeah. Now, I think more and more people are getting to this, this concept mm. of agreeing we are different you know yes humans have a certain blueprint that's similar but in all these lifestyle changes to, you know to our health and, and and diet we have to take a personalized approach which at the moment is trial and error yeah and that takes a long time a lot of dedication mm. many people have are too busy to do it yeah. and so we you know, we need tricks and things to help us yeah so i i think that that was a great example. And yeah, there are increasing apps now to help some of these things, you know, tracking sleep, for example. Mm. There's so many out there, you yeah. can do it, but there aren't all the other things we, we want to do. And um, yeah, it's not just about how many steps you do and how much sleep you get, mm. you know, there is there is more to it. And I, I'm, you know, I think it's really exciting to look forward to the next few years as we hopefully start to integrate things. And you know, I think what we're planning in Zoe is to, you know, we've just raised some more money. And... You raised some more money recently? Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, so we raised another 25 million. Oh, wow. And from our original investors. Yeah, so they, they just think this thing's going great. So they want to, all kinds of other ideas to keep uh, sca a, scaling the whole thing, but also bring more personalization to, to the actual product. And, you know, that everything from giving some advice for people who've got I know IBS or mm. high blood pressure or uh, getting sleep alarms, mm. um, linking to other wearables as well. So we could start to get that information in. So we can start to see how your your food choices vary with how your body was the day before, or you know these kind of real real time things. So it's a it's a very exciting time that we are you know receptive to other ways to to keep improving as well as you know making much more of what we got we've hardly touched our microbiome data for what it can really show and and, and help people now that we've got 50,000 people's metagenomes mm. and their diet histories and their health histories you know 
we're at the stage where, yeah, we can go in all kinds of directions, but hopefully to improve the user experience and the fact that people can get more out of it. And really our aim is to do things that this isn't a test. This is a program that's sustainable for life. Mm. People just use these, these tools to keep experimenting and keep finding out about food and um, making their own discoveries. How do you think Zoe, we'll talk about the book in a second, I'll just while I'm on this training thought, how do you think Zoe fits in with the wider healthcare system in that, do you think it could ever negate the need for primary care physicians to do preventive medicine in that the user is equipped with the knowledge and the motivation and the sort of virtual uh, health coaches to sort of prevent them from from dealing from uh, uh, suffering with uh, disease in 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 the future, or well, I think currently general practitioners are not geared up for yeah. prevention. They do a few basic health checks like blood pressure mm. and uh, at certain times of life, but it's not very well followed up. It's not complete, and I think we've shown like with COVID that we totally replaced uh, GPs at a time when we're told you can't see a GP with an app that people used and engaged with much more than they would have done with a GP. So I think if we expand what we're doing and we keep having the same success and it does become more of a holistic tool and we're already including exercise and sleep mm. and, uh, and diet, but we, you know there are other things like stress and mental health and um, linking in, you know, with how specific disease and what you might want to do for that. I don't know if you've got joint pain or yeah. uh, going through the menopause, you know, we're increasingly getting more data. I think there is this potential for um, the Zoe tool in the future to be that, you know, digital GP yeah. as well as a nutritionist, but a sort of lifestyle GP rather than a, you know, disease GP. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the important distinction here. Yeah. yeah. It's never going to replace when you're ill, you need to do something. Of course, yeah, yeah. But I think totally um, people buying it, you know, it'd be lovely to see a time when the NHS would buy into this kind of thing mm. and allow it to be used by the people that probably need it most. Yeah. Which, you you which, are seeing the, the NHS buy into some digital programs. I think some are available by prescription via certain primary care networks. I think there are some weight loss programs yes, and other yeah, things, but yeah. yeah, but generally the you know the quality of them hasn't you know isn't great, and it's no. it's really just because they're generally fairly cheap and accessible. Mm. Um, but you know, let's keep an open mind. Hopefully, they're going to do more of that social prescribing, mm. allow people to use it. But we're we're exploring ways of trying to give these. Uh, Zoe programs to people who need it, who haven't got the money, you know, by doing deals with GP practices and, and um, other charitable organizations and things. Because I think we do want to see this moving from the very health conscious yeah. uh, group of, of people that always lead these, these revolutions to the people that really need it and tailor it for them. So, yeah. but yeah, but I think it's a super exciting time. And COVID has totally changed people's views on phones and apps. And yeah, I think, and how they, you know, interact with healthcare. 
Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, not going to change. It's no, not definitely go back. not. I mean, most GPs, you know, use some form of AcuRx or virtual consults these days, and I think the vast majority of my generation of GPs, I think, find it really useful because it just increases the efficiency of those transactions that you have with your patients and the ability to communicate with them. And I think overall, most patients really enjoy it, bar some who you know, want that physical contact, which I think is always going to be an important part of medicine regardless. Um, but certainly when, you know, when we're facing the challenges of the current day and the, the future issues that we're going to have, we're going to need a more sort of efficient system. And I think apps like Zoe and platforms where you can have that lifestyle advice and personalization to your nutrition um, is going to be yeah, absolutely game changing and just the norm, I guess. But I think, yeah, and apps that also talk about sleep and also talk about exercise yeah. and also talk about your mood. Mm. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you do it in one space rather than having four or five apps you have to fill in every yeah, day? I mean, totally. I think that's the other thing that's uh, that's quite interesting. But yeah, no, it's it's an exciting time, isn't it, to be in prevention, especially, you know, I mean, with, with health services around the world sort of crumbling, we've got to find new models. Yeah, totally. Look, you, you've been doing the rounds with podcasts and uh, YouTube videos and all that kind of stuff uh, for Food for Life. Uh, what What are some of the things that you wish people asked you about that you really want to chat about? Because you're probably asked everything from what are your views on fish? What are your views on nuts? What about saturated fats? You know, and I, I just wonder, I'm sure you love talking about all those subjects, but what do you what do you really, really love talking about that perhaps most people don't ask you about? Um. The bit I really liked researching and writing was actually the future of food. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe it's the sort of geeky you know, <laughs> side of me that got into that. But, you know, a lot of that book, you go through it, it can be depressing, right? Because, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, gosh, we got all these, you know, pesticides, herbicides. Yeah. we got all these chemicals in food, ultra-processed food. We've got food waste. We've got, you know, it's like... Oh, dear, we're all going to run out of <laughs> of meat and land and, uh, yeah. you know, floods and uh, and dying of obesity and diabetes and, and getting cancer. So it was really nice to actually say, well, actually, there is a way out of this. And future foods are a potential way. If we can link that amazing tech that's happening mm with cultural shifts in our in our ideas about say meat eating or fish rearing or dairy mm. and come to something that you know we can embrace this stuff and probably have to break the whole of the farming system mm. uh, it, you are potentially facing a very optimistic picture yeah that it's not hard to do, and but you know it means we've got to break so much stuff about all the farm subsidies, you know, that come from the Europe, you know, European Union that we're making taxpayers paying all this these farmers to make unprofitable stuff that mm. we don't really want for our health or planet. Exactly, um, and so we have to sort of shift a lot. But I was really excited because until I researched, I really had no idea it was that far along. Uh -huh. Uh, and it's changed just in the last you know couple of years, really. So first we've got eating insects. Mm -hmm. You know these companies in South Africa with these 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 fly larvae that you know get fed off scraps from restaurants and 
uh, producing large amounts of protein that absolutely fine to eat and a lot of the world do eat you know cricket protein mm. etc so that's one area which most people can understand might be a start of a yuck factor but you know people are very happy to eat you know gourmet insects all the time such you know we call them lobsters yeah. but you know but um, that's they people used to think they were revolting yeah people used to give lobsters and and oysters to poorer people the servants or yes that's right instead of wages they just gave them those (laughs) Um, but they had contracts they weren't able to have it more than six days a week uh Uh, they had to be given real food (laughs) (laughs) so this is i think it was in maine so there's maine lobsters but that whole animal protein stuff which is going to continue and it'd be great to see that happening particularly in you know africa and uh, other countries that are nice and hot and naturally <laughs> you produce flies and insects yeah. to produce protein locally. But then there's this stem cell uh, meat yeah. idea, which I thought was a bit flaky. Um, and I've been sort of following that from when I first wrote Diet Myth. Mm. You know, the, the quarter of a million dollar burger yeah. is now a, uh, a $20 burger. Uh, you can go to... Uh, a, a chicken shop in Singapore and try a chicken nugget that was has never been in the farm. Yeah. Um, just comes from a single cell. That's amazing. And so very rapidly, the scale and the price has come right down mm. on this so that it is uh, a viable product that could be used as an alternative, particularly in uh, processed uh, meats and foods without really any cost. And then, and people I'm speaking to are saying, you know, within three to five years, it'll be at cost parity. Mm. So once it gets the key to changing, apparently the whole, everyone's opinion about meat alternatives comes from the US price of uh, a beef burger slab that you just, you know, the patty. Yeah. That apparently is the, that's the game changer. That's, so that's, you- that price is what determines how much people will pay for things. And they don't, if, so at the moment, all the veggie, vegan alternatives are all twice the price of yeah. that. Yeah. And within a couple of years, they're going to be lower. Or, and that will suddenly make people shift towards uh, either getting 50-50 where they're mixed or totally um, uh, stem cell based or uh, equivalent. So that really, to me, was interesting, and the fact that they can now um, grow up fat from plants yeah. um, separately, and they've got a way of gluing the fat from plant fat to the meat to make something that looks like bacon. Yeah, yeah. So bacon, you know, but yeah. it really is the, well, the uh, literary. Yeah. Um, so that's fantastic. But they, I, I think, the other thing that I've recently discovered is that back microbes are probably the biggest secret to future foods mm. and that um, you can get, we're already growing lots of fungi and molds, uh, tofu and these things in large industrial quantities, but you can actually genetically modify microbes to produce really high protein uh, contents. And um, so these super high protein bacteria that you can then just, uh, when they're dead, you know, you can harvest into flour and uh, rice that's incredibly high in um, protein content and very good source of all the nutrients you need. 
And you can harness solar power to do that. And you can do this on a vast scale. Yeah. So for a hundredth of the land use and climate impact of the current way of getting protein from um, animals. So that, and that technology is, you know, all of this stuff is in, in a few years. It's not, it's not decades or uh, centuries. And, but to do that, we've got to start preparing people for it and think about this cultural change that mm. you go, you know, we have this idyllic, particularly in the UK, this idyllic view of the farm as, you know, a few cows, a few chickens, a few you know, sheep running around and happy farmers, you know, um, drinking cider. And, uh, uh, you know, this is what we've been brought up with for centuries. I think, you know, it's converting that stuff back to woodlands, rewilding. And, you know, behind some trees, there'd be these massive um, metal containers driven by solar power that are fermenting tanks. And our farmers would be basically farming microbes yeah. and producing these proteins and then those you know, being made into the same foods and freeing up land to produce more plant sources of protein as well. So this stuff is like, you know, I don't know, several fold more, much more protein than soy, for example, yeah, yeah. or pea proteins or these other ones used. So I think put that together, plus what I'm seeing about the second generation of um, meat alternatives, I think is really exciting. So the... Because um, I saw something on your Instagram, I think recently where you visited, was it Neil Rankin's startup yeah. where they're combining plant proteins to create a very... Yes, Simplicity Foods in London. That's it, and yeah. Um, yeah, they invited me along to have a look at it and it, to see their fermenting. And, mm. you know, I do a lot of fermenting at home on a small scale and you see it on a larger scale and and amazingly their mix doesn't include any of the sort of nasty things you get in the current veggie burgers yeah where you've got you know glues to stick it together you've got preservatives um you've got flavorings and colorants and a big list that you really don't want yeah uh, even if it doesn't have meat you know still you know it's not great um to something that is really just tastes amazing based on the fermenting process. So again, microbes come into it. Yeah. And it's using just tomatoes and onions and mushrooms and some soy in mixtures that give you this really amazing umami savory taste they make into a patty and make fantastic um, sausages, burgers, and sort of pasta sauces. Mm. But suddenly for me, that's, you know, meat alternative, 2.0 and that you know that fermenting exercise and there's other bigger scale stuff in the US that I've seen as well oh yeah um didn't taste as good to me but (laughs) they you know they're just using mainly pea pea protein fermented pea proteins um but they're able to do this at large scale and it's that cleaner label yeah that is going to make it much healthier and so yeah it looks like microbes could be rescuing us again yeah, uh, or postponing why, our demise a bit quicker. Yeah, yeah. I've always wondered why, like, for for tempeh, you know, it's, it's fermented soybean, you know, use the, um, I think it's a type of rice yeast, I forget the name. Koji. Koji, that's it. 
Um, why don't we do the same for others? Like, I mean, just mentioned pea protein there. So uh, I'm assuming it's a similar sort of process for creating that product. Yes, I mean, all of this fermenting can be, you know, it's, you, you use salt, you use sugar, uh, you combine it with, you know, milk products or you combine it with something that is, that microbes can break down, use the sugar or salt as, as fuel, break this down and produce acids, which preserve the whole thing, but also change the complexity and, and taste and produce other chemicals. And that's essentially what you're doing. Adding koji, which is this, you know, mystical Japanese fungus, mm. is just another way of a starter. Mm. Uh, it's getting the whole thing catalyzed and, and moving. So you could use a combination of all of these things. And I think this is what people's needed is this idea that, you know, you can totally change the flavor and texture of vegetables um, to resemble everything that, you know, culturally for the last 50 years, we've taken as our, you know, the top of the tree, mm. you know, meaty tastes, you know, which for many of us cultures identify with that and totally replace it. And, you know, I've, I've tried out these products on friends without knowing it. they didn't know it and they couldn't tell yeah. the difference. Um, especially if you, you know, most of us now don't like, don't have unseasoned meat anyway, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's always spiced up or yeah. uh, in something else or uh, with addition. So, yeah, so, Latterly, you know, I went through this whole phase of depression, but also depressing bits in that book about everything we're doing wrong to that future food thing that is, you know, if enough people can link you know, the campaign to, you know, help climate change with improving our, our food and the common ground here is the microbes, not just, you know, in our gut, but in the soil, the soil yeah. mm -hmm. um, in the air all around us and these same microbes can actually transform our, our food into something that can completely replace, you know, the mass farming mm. industry that is is past its sell-by date yeah. and needs to be wrapped up fast that we're all paying masses of taxpayers' money for. Yeah. And, you know, retrain farmers to be fermenters. And I think, yeah, at the moment, most farmers would probably not be happy with, uh, you know, what I'm suggesting. But I think the idea is, you know, we've gone through many ch industrial revolutions, et cetera. And I think, we, you know, we, lots of, you know, supermarket cashiers no longer exist. You know, yeah, it's yeah. Um, many jobs, horses went out, you know, but we need to keep, keep moving. Yeah, that? I mean, we've had the green revolution. This could be the micro revolution, I guess. Yeah, the, I think harnessing that rather than trying to kill them all is really important. And, and there's this whole parallel world about, Soil and mm. um, three George Monbiot's book mm. Regenesis, which is fantastic about uh, soil yeah. microbes, and is uh, really showing that, that these basic principles of what how microbes are important, whether it's in a fermenting jar, in your gut, or in the soil, the principles are really the same. And yeah. I think this is, you know. I start to get obsessed that they really are, you know, the, the center of everything and we should be worshiping them as our <laughs> microbial gods. <laughs> you mentioned um, uh, two letters there that get people's back up quite a bit, GM uh, and GE, I guess. Um, a lot of people have fears around messing with nature, which, you know, we do all the time in various ways, particularly when it comes to 
creating drugs and, and other pharmaceuticals. Um, what are your thoughts on genetic uh, engineering and where do you think our unknown unknowns are? Firstly, my, I mean, yeah, we've moved from genetically modified mm. foods to genetically uh, engineered or edited foods because we've got much more precise with the genetic tools. We need to snip off the genes. It's not the very crude sort of, you know, chisel and uh, hammer idea. Basically, I, I've never really been worried about GM foods. I think it's been a, a nonsense to worry about that. Mm -hmm. We've got so many much greater health and environmental crises to worry about that it really is a nonsense to be. We have these blanket bans on GM foods in Europe that are constantly being broken because mm -hmm. all the animal feeds are not GM anyway. Yeah, so yeah. It, they're in our food chain. Yeah. And it's, you know, ridiculous to not use um, the best products there are. And this is new technology and no one's ever shown it's not safe. So um, for the, the way it's used at the moment, it's not, it's not a problem. Of course, someone needs to keep an eye on it when you're, you know, doing things to fish or you're, you know, doing things to farm animals. But, you know, creating a different type of tomato mm. is not a risk to the human race. And I think we really should be moving on to much more important things, herbicides, pesticides, you know, antibiotic use, um, all the all the stuff in slurry and fertilizers yeah. that comes from the farms and in our drinking water and and our rivers and seas. You know, these are the things we should be worried about. So, you know, I just think we need to move on. That's that's the last century stuff. Mm. I, I agree. I think there are grand. Uh considerations like antibiotic resistance i think um perpetuated by our overuse of antibiotics in the farming system huge huge issue and i think we can negate that with some of the you know new technologies that you were just talking about you mentioned um uh, an example in the book where a particular crop was edited to make it uh resistant i think to certain pests so you'd have to use less herbicide until evolution sort of caught up and then they've you know these pests have mutated evolved and now they can you know consume these uh, these crops again where do you think we run the risk of constantly running up against mother nature and having to keep up and keep up editing and stuff do you do you think that might be an issue well just so you know for the record i'm not a, a pro genetic editing all our food mm -hmm. i think we should be not trying to fight nature, we should be trying to work with it mm. and, you know, uh, work out what the really sustainable ways of farming are. We need to, you know, stop destroying our soil. Um, it's, it's a very holistic argument. It's very hard to take one bit of it and yeah. say, oh, I've got to do this or that. But yeah, I mean, the fact that I'm happy with GM or GE foods doesn't mean that I like the practices of the companies that do it, that give farmers, you know, no alternative, but they have to buy that particular seed, that particular fertilizer, that chemical, only do monocultures, all this kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, it needs to shift if we're going to, you know, um, have any soil left in 20 years time if, you know, the planet's still viable. So I think a lot of the farming practices need to change. Uh, lots of evidence that we're over plowing fields that 
because of the current system that's very reliant on uh, fertilizers and pesticides, etc. But that's that's killing all the microbes all the time, so there's less nutrients, and it, you know, it, it's a very complicated story. So I think people have to sit back and take a bit of an overview mm. and realizing there probably isn't one size fits all anyway. Yeah. We can't suddenly shift to um, you know, eco-organic farms everywhere overnight, we would starve because mm. they do still produce less crop than... Yeah, it's an um, uncomfortable truth though, isn't it? The fact that organic and biodiverse farms... Are... Yeah, and you know, depending on your calculations, you know, they may not always be better in terms of land use for what we want. So there are you know, endless examples in the book where what sounds a great idea yeah. ends up, mm. once you start thinking, you know, because each of the foods I discussed that, you know, you, you look at the ethical, I look at the ethical side of it, the health side of it, and, you know, the planetary environment side. And it's quite hard to get them all lined up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that, and, and, you know, when you get to chickens, you know, <laughs> it's a great example of of where you, you've got to f- decide well what, what's more important for you you yeah, know totally yeah um you can't tick all the boxes uh all the time and yeah. and i think that's why we <clears throat> having these sort of food eating rules a bit like religious rules you know does go out the window in this new world we just need to understand more and say well yeah i'm not 100% perfect for any of these three things mm. but I'm aware of them and you know if I'm not doing this you know if I am eating chickens I'm going to try and you know do something else good yeah, to instead offset it. to offset yeah, yeah. it's a bit yeah this offsetting idea yeah. I think is is a very interesting way and you know it's a bit like all of us you know I'm sure you've been to meetings and someone said well these are the 10 things you need to do to save the planet right yeah. and the number one is well you know uh, you should never go on a plane again. And you say, well, hang on a minute, I've got my, my holiday booked, you know, what am I going to do here? And, but if you say, well, okay, but, you know, I'm not eating any meat, uh, beef or lamb for the next uh, month, I'll say, fine, that's, you know, that's worth um, several aeroplane flights. Mm. Uh, you can justify that. You know, you've got a dog. Um, dog, what do they eat? Yeah, eat. You know, they eat meat. They, yes. they eat meat, right? Yeah. So you've got to offset that. Yeah. Um, you like a dog; they're good for your, you know, well-being and yeah. your mental state. But you're doing something that's actually wrong for the planet. So it's very hard to keep everybody happy. Yeah. Um, so I think we have to assume we're not going to keep everyone happy, but in our own mind, keep a sort of mental check of of where we are. Uh, you know, hoping we're always. Doing better than average in in all those areas, and uh, just do some off- mental offsetting. You know, say, well, yeah, I'm not in London. You don't need a car, so you know, you walk a lot more, and that maybe you know offset That's some of the upset, other your yeah. other your other guilty pleasures. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, which you know we all have. And I think if we're going to really shift people on this food and environment journey, I think we've got to start being more flexible. You know, keeping sort of rough guides of what you're doing mm. without saying well if you you know gosh if you you end up and you're tempted by one steak you know twice a year you're out of the club you yeah know? yeah totally. um i really think that's important and i think this is where we need to break these barriers of 
you know, are you a real vegan? Are mm. you a real vegetarian? Mm. You know, what's the definition? You know, not worry about, you know, eating one snail and, and worry about, well, what group does that come in? You yeah. know, is it a sea snail? Is it a whatever? Um, but at the same time, you know, thinking about, you know, seafood, for example, which talk a lot about the book. I was you know. going to ask you about seafood. Yeah, because again, that's not, I love seafood. I, you know, every time I go to Italy, my wife's Italian. You know, one of our sort of favorite things to do is to get like a lovely piece of grilled sardine or another fish that's common over there, grouper, and uh, you know, eat it with like pasta and all the antipasti and all the rest of it. Uh, I was reading the <laughs> section on fish. And I was like, oh, I don't want to give up fish. It's like one of my one of the last pleasures for me. But you, you, you know, you you it's one of the things that you perhaps change your mind on, isn't it, fish? Absolutely, yes. So I think when I was researching, you know, Dartmouth and spoon fed, I said, ah, oh, fish, super healthy. You know, it's, no one's ever going to argue against that. Yeah. You know, it's got those omega-3s and all this sort of <laughs> yeah. great stuff in it. And I said, but I'll have another look at the, you know, I'll dig a bit deeper because I'm always a bit suspicious if some, I couldn't think of a reason why it should be that healthy, right? You know, really? Is it healthier than chicken? You know? It's just underwater chicken is what I used to tell my my kids. Um, you know, this this white, it's meat. You know, we call it a different word, but it is meat. And when I looked at the data, the epidemiology data that I thought was barn door, that, you know, fish eaters had two or three times better survival and, you know, half the rates of cancers, heart disease. The difference when you sum them all up in meta-analysis comes to about 11% benefit. Not massive. Which, and that's observational studies, mm. which always includes a bit of bias because generally fish eaters tend to have other healthier lifestyles. Yeah. So it could be zero. It's not harmful for you. There's any evidence really that unless you're pregnant and you're eating a lot of high mercury fish, mm. Possibly kids, you know, we are getting more and more mercury in some of these bigger fish. Um, is bad for you, but um, yeah, so that was depressing. So, okay, it's not really that good for you. And then the other reason we we're told to eat fish is because of omega 3. Uh -huh. And I go into this detail that these really big studies have just come out um, massive 20,000 person randomized controlled trials, the gold standard, showing that unless you've just had a heart attack, um, there's really no benefit to having omega-3 as a supplement for years, mm. which was the rationale for having fish. Yeah. So it doesn't make you brainy, I was told. Um, and it doesn't, you know, really increase your lifespan or do anything to your heart. So, and if we ate two portions of fish every week, as we're told to by the NHS, um, and around the world generally, most people support that view. Uh, the oceans would be completely dry of fish within probably two years. So we, it's it's totally non-sustainable. And what I didn't realise until I researched it was most of our fish comes from fish farms now. Yeah, that was a bit of a shock. I thought, oh, maybe you know, twenty, thirty percent, but mm. wow, you know, majority, seventy percent plus, and it's getting it's going up to ninety percent very yeah. quickly as they're getting more and more skillful. Yeah. At doing this and what feeds the fish in fish farms is the little fish you know the small sardines the little anchovies yeah. that you were enjoying um, in uh, in Italy 
uh, and they're using them up much faster. They have to use more kilos of them, mm. like 50% more, than to make the bigger fish that looks nice in restaurants. So that was very depressing because yeah. I love fish as yeah. well. Right? It's like, oh no, what have you done? To-? So, but I think fish is getting more expensive, and it's rightly. You know, yes, you've got this cheap farmed salmon, which to me has become like boring chicken. Mm. It doesn't taste of anything. We should be avoiding it. It's not healthy. You know, just served at every official, certainly every doctor's conference you ever go to, it's all you get is this dull salmon. <laughs> um, we could do without it. And it's, we know it's got chemicals and, you know, it's, it's like a highly processed food now. Uh-huh. Uh, only ray of light is, I think, shellfish. Uh-huh. Um, we can have as many um, mussels, clams, oysters as we like. They are great for the oceans. They're totally sustainable. And according to most of the sources, they are non-sentient. Okay, yeah. So they won't mind yeah, they won't. if, if <laughs> they you eat them. <laughs> Compared to the octopus or, the, or fish in general. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and so, yeah, the octopus is a great example. Is you know, intelligent being that really yeah. does mind being stabbed by some spear fisherman. Um, these mussels, you know, they're just there and they're just filtering, you know, the oceans for us. So we need to be really cultivating our uh, local mussel and clam industries, which are really good in this country. And the, we, we export most of it, interestingly, because we don't, we're not very into it ourselves. Yeah, I mean, Keith Floyd, back in the 70s, was lamenting about how we send most of our incredible fish over to the Europeans because they know exactly how to to make it. Um, one thing that I think I noticed in that section was uh, how mollusks and, and um, uh, the, the, the shellfish, they filtrate the sea and so they concentrate a lot of the chemicals in their, in their body, is that correct? So we're actually in, ingesting a lot of microplastics Yes, yeah, so microplastics are, yeah, that's so the only downside. Sort to bring it, it down it, again. No, no, I know. Oh, I've, I've <laughs> deliberately forgotten that bit. <laughs> the, yeah, if you have lots of mussels, mussel and chips like the Belgians, you, they've worked out that you, you will be slowly filling up with these micro particles of plastic, which comes from all the plastic waste, all those unnecessary water bottles and things that we throw into the sea. And eventually get ground down to this, this sort of dust that mm. never disappears, mm. and is swallowed by all kinds of fish, and uh, it's also in the air. But particularly troubling is yeah, it's it is in mollusks. But so far, no one knows of any real problems with it. But it's early days in this yeah. kind of research. But yeah, um, someone's estimated that if, and, you know, it's like eating if you. Eat, Muscles for a year, it's like uh, eating a, a credit card every year or something. Yeah. Yeah. They always use like really mm. odd examples like but that. How anyone's too. worked that out, I'm yeah, not Yeah, I sure. don't know, yeah. But yeah, so um, that's, that's the answer. But I, so yeah, I will always go for those things on the menu. But you know, to be honest, it hasn't stopped. There are still some fish that are more sustainable than others. Mm-hmm. The small ones you mentioned, mm-hmm. small unattractive ones, we don't hardly eat at all in this country. They're the ones we should be they're delicious uh, eating. Well, right? and they often get thrown away or used as fish food or dog food or whatever it mm. is cat food um, and we need to move away from those very large fancy fish 
there are hundreds of fish species, thousands, and we, we tend to only eat about a dozen of, of them. Uh, those that have nice, attractive names and, you know, don't have some horrible teeth looking at you when you're, when you're in the fishmongers. Yeah. Um, so I, I've changed. I, I don't really have much fish at home. I will have it as a special treat. I think we've got to start seeing it in the same way um, uh, as meat, really. Yeah. Uh, and realize there's a big difference between the different fish, and some are really endangered. And the bigger the fish in general, A, the more mercury it's got, B, the more endangered it is as well. And um, yeah, it would be sad if we completely destroyed our oceans just because someone said the fish are healthy for us. Yeah. This word moderation comes up quite a bit, just in you know, general practice in general, and just in the ether. How do you explain moderation to people now that you've done all this research, ongoing research for the last you know, 10, 20 years in food? How do you approach this topic of moderation, considering fish stocks, animal welfare, the impact on the environment? What do you say to people? How do you explain that? I think there's a difference between having things regularly and, you know, very happy to have virtually all plants regularly. There's very little harm in doing that unless if, if, you, if you vary it. I mean, if you only had oats or yeah. rye covered with herbicides, you know, it's, you would get high levels of chemicals. But if you vary it and spread it out over the year, that's fine. Um, whereas you know, meat and fish, I'm saying... You know, move them to one side, put them on a pedestal. They are an occasional treat to be really treasured. And, you know, I can remember when I was, you know, young, you know, 10 years old, a chicken was, you know, quite a treat for the family. Uh, I'm not saying we didn't eat meat. We had lots of poor quality meat the rest of the time. But something like a chicken was something you looked forward to and you could afford. And, you know, you used it, always used it. The next day, the leftovers mm. and you know, beyond. Now, you know, the chicken costs less than a pint of beer, mm. and we've got it wrong. Yeah. So it's it's trying to sort of reestablish, in a way, what's what are staples and what are treats. That's the way I I view it, and um, and changing this mindset about what a healthy food is. Yeah, well, it's going to be a difficult one, and it's going to vary for different people. It it will because. Uh, you know, just leaning into human psychology, we're loss averse, right? So if you allow people to have something at a very cheap price and then take it away, we're going to have a revolution on our hands. You know, there are going to be people up in arms. Mm. And particularly when you compound that with the cost of living crisis and the you know price of everything going up, if you take people's ability to feed themselves with protein, let's say, um, or the protein that they have got used to consuming, it's going to be a diff- difficult pill to swallow. Definitely. But, you know, you know, countries that do care about climate change mm. can start um, putting taxes on things that have massive land use. And that would, taxes we know, change people's behavior fairly quickly. And they have other, other effects and always good, but that's one way you can do it. But I think it's through this idea of educating. And as I said, you know, if the family just likes eating chicken because it's cheap, if they can buy a chicken Kiev made from microbes 
or made in a, uh, a Petri dish mm. that tastes exactly the same and is 20% cheaper, they'll do it. Yeah. So I think it psychology is important, but you can see how this this idea of replacing that protein with something else. And, and I spoke to companies that are also making fish. Um, you can grow up fish in Petri dishes. Um, and so you can have ethical um, fish meat uh, in exactly the same way. And particularly important for all, if you think about all the things that prawns and shrimps yeah. are used for at the moment, where, you know, we don't think about their, you know, often slave labor, yeah. there's horrendous environmental damage in, in Asia, in mm -hmm. Vietnam and Thailand, where we get this, the cheapest products from, and they arrive frozen. You replace those with something that, you know, is ethically and environmentally much better, and it's slightly cheaper. I think, you know, they may have to first dress it up and paint it red and, you know, <laughs> sort of um, make it, you know, as they do at the moment. They, yeah. they use dyes and things and the same yeah, tricks exactly. to market it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so so I think it, on its own, you can't just tell people don't have cheap chicken. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You're yeah. absolutely right. You've got to give them alternatives and, uh, and nudge people in these directions. But I think... You know, there are people, you know, that are thinking about these things already, and it, I think it, it will shift. Uh, but the first thing is to stop thinking, A, that animal protein is absolutely essential for everything, mm. and B, that, um, you know, there's something boring or bad about plants or plant substitutes or something weird about it. And, you know, that's part of this process. That's really way why... Writing this book was, you know, a bit of a journey. And by the time I've written it, you know, there's bits, it's, things are changing so fast, there's bits at the beginning I'll probably have to keep rewriting. But oh, like yeah. Fourth road bridge, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I um, remember the bit about algae. I, I get quite excited about algae. I love using algae. Like, there's so many different types, dolls and... No one, else, no one asks you about algae no, and no, you wish no. they did. Well, tell us, what's the most interesting thing about algae? I'll, I just like to view you. I honestly mm. love like combining it with different types of spaghetti. Uh, obviously, lava bread is like very traditional. Um, you've got lots of uh, different ways in which to use the samphire that you find in like, you know, Norfolk and stuff. I always serve that on the side of fish that I'm going to have less regularly now. Um, I, I think it gives a wonderful sort of salty flavor to the food. But it also is packed full of nutrients as well. It's like another element of our diet that I think we can improve the diversity of by just having, you know, that addition. And it's it's available all over the British Isles, so we should be eating more of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I do get friends who from Cornwall send me various packs from yeah. various farms there of dried seaweeds and things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, I presume the dried ones are as... You just rehydrate them and they're yeah. as good. Um, just put them in hot water and you can use that as a kombu. Um, you can use it as the sort of base of a, of a ramen. Um, you know, you can add a little bit of miso to that as well. And you've got a little bit of ferments in there. I, I think it's a, a really good ingredient, but because it has, in some cases, a strong taste, like wakame in particular, that that can be you know off-putting for, for certain people, apart from, you know, Asian countries, Japanese, have it as a daily staple. Spain's very traditional. I eat, I go there and eat a lot there. But I did find one restaurant that did do a, a seaweed um, 
paella. So oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of kind of funky. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. No. It's a general idea. You know, we we need to widen our ideas of what food is as well. Mm. And come back to this idea of you know what moderation and you know we regard things as absolute staples, don't we? And I give bread. There's a lot on bread there, and mm. in a way. Uh, my journey has also been to discover my relationship with bread and how for me I can't really have bread as a, a staple like I used to if I don't want, don't want to increase my risk of illnesses and uh, putting on weight mm. and that, that was kind of interesting because it's so much of a part of our culture in the UK isn't it you know toast and marmalade Absolutely. egg on toast yeah. in the morning um, you know in hospitals I mean every junior doctor got through by someone putting on the toast. There was nothing else on the wards to eat, but you'd be there at three in the morning, um, waiting around for some blood result and yourself, I need something, you know, and you make toast. So it's hugely part of our culture, you know, sandwiches, you know, that's all uh, I ate for about 10 years at at lunchtime. Yeah, that's what you said at the start of the book. I remember Mm. you saying that, you know, you'd have your sandwich sometimes a posh sandwich from MS or somewhere like that you know so we've got MS. well it was st thomas's it was gonna yeah, well, st. Thomas's. there you go yeah <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a it's a nice area and uh you have that maybe a meal deal and then you'd have that high and then the crash and then you'd you know, be peckish later on that that is basically happening thousands of times over every single day for many of us millions millions of people yeah absolutely and thinking they're eating something healthy so I mean, exactly you know, that's really my bugbear about nutrition is is you know i don't actually mind things like coca-cola or fanta or pepsi because everyone knows they're not good for you right <laughs> you know yeah. no one really thinks well red bull that's going to be really healthy, you know good thing to drink monster drink no you know it's rubbish but you're doing it and that's fine but it's these other stuff oh bread that's you know dyed brown that looks healthy that's you know and a tuna you know paste that's got some sweet corn that's probably got lots of sugar in it and, mm. and other things you can't see you know that's what i object to and but you know we'll come back to the, this idea so for me yeah bread was spiking my blood sugars all the time mm. and what i thought was a healthy lunch you know often compounded with orange juice you know, would send me right into the diabetic range, I mean, up to about peaks of about 11 millimoles, you know, crazy. If it had gone to casualty then, that's yeah, okay. Yeah. Lucky it came down again, but you think, well, that shouldn't happen. And so weaning, you know, perhaps a quarter of the population off bread, uh, as they think is a, a healthy thing to eat, because it's got fiber in it, I think, that's changing our whole view of what food is and you know getting us out of this this sort of rut mm. um, you know and breakfast cereal is another one you know it's a, seems a staple you know healthy labels stuck all over them mm. kids cereals kids yogurts you know people thinking they're doing the right thing that really annoys me now and you know totally um, ignored by the government you know the lobbyists are just saying you can't touch you know why didn't they touch uh, you know children's yogurts when they did the sugar tax mm. you know whose interest was that in mm. certainly not you know um, 
know, dentists and uh, you know obesity experts, but you know food companies who've got the money and the power, yeah, and why they're allowed to claim you know they've got all these amazing vitamins and things. And <laughs> yeah, I did a test on um, was it Special K? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, looked at what iron is in it. Yeah. It's just iron filings. <laughs> oh, you can get it out with a magnet. Oh, my word. If you mix it up. Oh, my God. You know, it's just, this stuff is just rubbish. Um, anyway, th these are the sort of, you know, this is why I'm sort of doing what I do is to get people to think again about food. As I've done, you know, I, you know, yeah, I started as a, a doctor working on obesity, but I still didn't know much about food. As most doctors, we're not trained. Uh, and even as I've done further books, I'm still un uncovering more things. So I think it's important for all of us to start quest keep questioning what really is you know, good, bad for us, the planet, but also us as individuals, ethics, all these things. Yeah. It's constantly changing. And, it, and I think it comes down to the fact that for us, our food choices are the most important things that we do every day that can influence our health and the health of our planet. And I don't think that's emphasized nearly enough. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, it's inevitable. You know, I, you know I, can't, I can't change what I eat. I can't do this, I can't do that. Well, we make hundreds of food choices every day. And, you know, there's more and more cookery programs and uh, 30,000 items in a supermarket. Mm. But, you know, humans are funny, funny creatures. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're omnivores, but we're not really scratching the surface of that. Well, we were talking just before we, we turned the mics on about how you, how you deal with the two sides of the voices that you, you hear. You know, some people will say, well, you're elitist because you're taking away these foods that are often cheap and are often utilized by the poor in society and the other side you've got people saying well you're not being strong enough we should be removing all foods that have you know excessive use of like petrochemicals on or you know are refined in any way how, how do you personally balance that because there are a lot of people i find particularly on social media who are trying to police the internet who i find really infuriating how do you deal with that because obviously with the books that you're, you're doing and, and with the, the public image, it, it, it comes as, as, as one of the prices you have to pay. Yes, so the criticism for, for me is usually that I'm more on the elitist side. And, um, you know, I did a thing on, on Breakfast TV on ITV recently and I, you know, and I went out of my way to point out that many of the good nutritious foods you can find in a, a can for 30p mm. and that frozen peas are good and you know and just because I wasn't talking about them all the time and I was talking about how to make kimchi or something like that that was you know, seen as that is to to elitist but generally what I you know I think we have to strike this balance and it is important to try and always have you know rather than saying yes this is the most expensive flour you can possibly get to make the best possible sourdough. Yeah. To say, well, what is the cheap, cheap version of this? Yeah. Um, how do you, you know, people at the other end, how can they do this particularly at the moment? So I think, yeah, I think it's good to be reminded that, you know, uh, and, as, and doctors particularly don't, you know, we are 
we often think in a slightly elite way of doing the very best and trying to you know be at the cutting edge of everything the latest technology so mm. it, it, it it's good to be brought down to earth on that as long as it's not excessive and say we well, can't talk about the very best healthy foods because yeah. they might be more expensive than average because uh, it's not like i'm encouraging people to go to expensive restaurants exactly right? yeah and and fermented foods I get criticised, oh, well, you know, this kefir you recommended costs, you know, four quid a go or something. I said, well, make it yourself. Um, once you pay, you know, 10p for the granules or something per go, it, it's the same as a, a pint of milk. You can get them for free these days, yeah. just on like websites because people are trying to get rid of the stuff. <laughs> yeah, once they grow, they really grow. They yes. grow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but, so you've got that group and then the other group, um, saying I'm not purist enough, I, you know, yeah. um, how can you let people, yes, yeah, he said, you know, non-organic uh, produce is deadly and, you know, mm. but you've got to be realistic and very, very hard, unless you're some sort of hermit to manage to avoid pesticides. And even if you do have non-organic food, you're still ingesting pesticides Absolutely. and herbicides. So there's no black or white, everything is a spectrum. Mm. And I think that's the, the argument and in a way one reason um, you know I still do eat you know occasional fish and meat and other things is to be inclusive so that I can discuss these things with everybody mm. um, and I could pretty easily do without meat now um, but I do like to talk about the tastes and the flavors and the cultures when you go to different countries and things like this so um, you know I think we can all be you know, 95% uh, good and still that's fine. And I don't think we should be attacked on purity. So in a way, I, I, I can respect more the elitist argument than the purist argument. Yeah. I think purity is for religious fanatics. And if we want to be, we need to be pragmatic and we want to make changes to people's lives that is sustainable. Mm. And it's small nudges that do that. It's not, I'm going to, you know, shave my head and be a monk and, mm. and um, never, you know, do this or that for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I really strongly believe that that's what we need to do. Uh, if we're going to, you know, m shift this dial of the terrible health in this country. Yeah, and I think it's really important to talk about those foods and give them a platform, even if they are more expensive, because if only for like telling people how to make that stuff at home, but also it brings it into the marketplace, which actually brings the price down so it's more accessible to more consumers. That's my you know, unique perspective on it, I think. Um, kimchi, yeah. for example, you wouldn't find in regular supermarkets five, maybe 10 years ago, definitely not 10 years ago, but now there are various brands and whilst they might be ranging from eight pounds uh, a packet to five pounds, at least it's on the shelf. And it'll only go down in time as well. And you, plenty more recipes online. And you can make a sauerkraut version of it yeah. from your the, the leftover veg just before you go on holiday, as I did recently. You know? <laughs> yeah. it, it actually costs nothing apart from a bit of, you know, the 2% of salt I added. That was the, you know, just about the only cost. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, but I guess, you know, people like you and I who are, who are do need to always think of is there a cheaper alternative you know not go too down the I don't know, you know the, 
the refined, you know, let's add the, you know, eyelash of a bat, you know, type uh, <laughs> cooking recipe. Yeah. You have you spend your whole time going around trying to get this exotic herb. Yeah. Which, you know, outside uh, foodie areas of London, you're not going to get. Actually, on that note, uh, I really enjoyed the section where you talked about how to create a miracle food. I thought that was brilliant. So uh, if, you, if you wouldn't mind talking a bit about it, uh, these labs that basically charge companies to do a bit of research by you know, dripping a bit of their product into some cancer cells that you get mm. mail order and showing some positive effects and then publishing them in some of these erroneous journals. Uh, that, that was a bit of an eye opener for me. Yeah, well, it all comes from this whole sort of corrupt world, really, of of sort of pseudo publishing and pseudo science. Yeah. And I sort of came across it, but it, it's it's a huge profession. So you, you can either do market. So if you've got a, a miracle berry, so you know you've got your um, you know rupees rupee berry, right? You discover one. You bring great. it back. You bring it back from <laughs> South America, right? And or India. Let's say it's from Punjab. Punjab. I've got a lovely okay. story of how okay, it was story, yeah. behind exactly. the, the yeah. shed of my grandfather. So, so you either do the story, <laughs> yeah. and how everyone who went to that shed, you know, so miraculously lived, lived to be 150 years old yeah. and never got a wrinkle and uh, uh, had great sex life, or and you spend you know, time marketing that and getting celebrities to endorse your incredible berry, or you go down the route and you just send that berry off to uh, some company, I'm sure there's plenty in India or, or China, <laughs> that would put it in a lab and give you some results back to say, yes, it uh, you know inhibited these cancer cells and therefore it has anti-cancer properties. Mm. And if that first experiment didn't work, they said, well, you've got to pay another, you know, 500 pounds for another experiment and we'll get one that works. Mm. And so you get your result back and say, so you can then say, and then it's published in, you know, the Punjabi Journal of Agricultural Medicine. Yeah. And it's a, it's a publication and, uh, you know, many people say, oh, it's been proven to fight cancer. And that happens. Or you skip the whole thing together and, you can just get a fake paper written. Oh, wow. You get without, a fake without paper. bothering. And uh, there's all these journals that don't, as long as you pay $5,000, you get anything. Um, oh, yeah, anything you talked written. about that in the book, didn't you? There was actually. Uh, yeah, a guy who used to work in my department did this and um, sent a, a fake paper in <laughs> um, just to see what they would do, as long as you paid the money. And it was about whether politicians wipe their bottom with their uh, right hand or left hand. And um, it was determined whether they were socialist or right wing. And uh, it had, you know, the authors were, I don't know, IP Knightley or, um, <laughs> you know, huge ass and uh, sort of <laughs> Barry, you know, Barry S. Johnson, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, and Terry, was it Terry S. A May and you know it was like <laughs> Terry S A May <laughs> and, it, and it was it was and it was, yeah and uh, yeah that got they published it well they said they'd accepted it 
Right, yeah. Within two days. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's very good. <laughs> and then uh, there was a haggle about the money. But yeah, so you can get anything published. So you do have to be beware mm. of it's been published in a, in a scientific journal. Yeah. Because it's now unfortunately meaningless. Well, that was going to ask you about actually, because in the section on food, you've literally gone through every question I think I've been asked, uh, whether grains are good for me or not. What about saturated fats? What about cheese? What about, you know, all these different elements of food? That must have been a ton of, ton of research. How did you sort of methodically go through every single ingredient and actually do the due diligence and choose which sources to, to utilize? Just talk us through that process. Well, it's very painful, actually, because I wish I'd never started it. It was, it was <laughs> six years of my life. Um, but, you know, I, we started, you know, say a section on grains mm. and you go down and you take oats or something. And I would start with a review about health benefits of oats. And then I would do something about, okay, was there anything about oats and microbes? Is there anything about oats and uh, pesticides? Mm-hmm. Um, was there any nice stories about oats and, you know, hype about, and there was this big hype about oats and the... Cholesterol. 19, and, and cholesterol in the 1990s, which mm. is complete rubbish, but all oat products still allowed to say it lowers cholesterol, mm-hmm. although that's irrelevant because <laughs> total cholesterol, which was, and it only lowers it by 1% or something. Uh-huh. Um, so I just used to go into it and then follow these lines, usually going to the papers and then from one paper to another mm. to try and build up a story until, and if I tried to pick an overview a bit, I, I would. If there are enough papers, you then try and find someone who'd done a summary. Mm. And then I would summarize those summaries. Mm. And yeah, and it, it, it was, I, lo- I love playing detective. So sometimes, you know, I would just have a whole day of just going through these trails. Sometimes they'd be, you know, like Alice in Wonderland, I'd be going down all these rabbit holes. Yeah. Others, I'd come up with little treasures that, you know, gosh, I'd always wondered that. You know, I've always been asked that. I've never been able to find out that question. Yeah. And that was exciting. And I came, you know, this, you know, this stuff about oat breakfast cereals having, you know, five to ten times more um, glyphosate in them yeah. than others because it stays on the oats and not mm. on wheat. You know, it, some of this stuff uh, is fascinating. And yeah, and I was learning as I was doing it. And it almost feels like you are an investigative journalist. I, I imagine like, or like a detective with, you know, the culprit in the middle and all these different springs and strands of evidence coming off it and stuff. Yeah, it's like, you know, the coconut, you know, story and yeah. the coconut water and the coconut, you know, oil. You know, you're bouncing around between these media stories and you had celebrity endorsements. Mm. And as soon as you get too much celebrity endorsement, you know, it's a rings and alarm bell. Hang yeah. on a minute. You know, this is... You, don't, you know, if, if your food product is really good, you don't need celebrities, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I love that investigative side. So, yes, that that really got me into it. And these lawsuits that you suddenly saw, you know, and if the food companies were suing somebody, yeah, there was often a reason there that they were trying to hush something up or... So, yeah. Um, well, I did think that the lawsuit against Jaffa Cake was un- un- unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it was a cake or not. 
There are some pretty trivial lawsuits, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but it's amazing how, compared to other fields, there have been relatively few um, successful lawsuits against uh, food companies, you know, every other area it's succeed because they've been very good at defending themselves. Yeah, yeah. Where, um, you've you mentioned fish, you mentioned future foods. Um, are there other areas that you, you've changed your mind on or that have actually led you to change what you eat on a daily basis now? I gave up on iceberg lettuce <laughs> yeah. um, six years ago when I first got to that chapter and realised, yeah. um, and also realising that, yeah, for most Americans, it's about the only bit of green they ever eat. Yeah, it's quite sad that, isn't and it? And it is just water. Mm. It contains really no nutrients at all. So that, um, so I no longer eat iceberg lettuce and, you know, I will pick those more colorful ones. Mm. So it, it sort of helped me within, within food groups to uh, go for ones that I wouldn't have normally gone for, you know, going for more colorful, uh, you know, occasionally you get cauliflowers that are bright yellow or yeah. purple. They're uh, great. Yeah, I'm sure. You, yeah, lovely for your photos, but <laughs> they're also quite nice. They look, they make you so much more hungry, and and, and you know, make every dish so much better. And knowing that they're also got something different, you know, so that your gut microbes are like them. So, yeah. change my views on on those a bit. Um, I, what else have I changed? Um, how I eat as well. I think has, has changed also. You know, things like fasting. These yeah. purple cauliflower in my uh, my first book. I fell mm. in love with them as soon as I saw them. They look great, don't they? <laughs> yes, and they suddenly appeared. They'd, I'd never used to see them before. Yeah. And suddenly, in, in in good greengrocers, suddenly yeah. you see these things, and they uh, amazing getting bred for their their difference in colours. Yeah, which means that they've got different defence chemicals. It, yeah, exactly. These yeah. anthocyanins and other mm. polyphenols. So um, that's that's good. Um, uh, what else? do I do that I, I didn't, I've sort of gradually changed. I guess, yeah, my my eating habits, you know, uh, I mean, I'm doing more and more fermenting mm. myself that I didn't do and realized it's actually quite easy. Um, got into a bit of a pattern about doing my sourdough bread, so it's not as, it used to be this sort of huge mountain, you know, to do, and once you've got everything ready, it's, yeah, it really is just a, you know a few minutes every day. Yeah. Do you have bread every day now? As in sourdough? Or? No. Uh, does it still spice? irritating? My wife does because <laughs> she doesn't have any problems with uh, eating bread. Doesn't spike her. All oh, right. Um, so that's that's tough when she's uh, you know putting something in the toaster and it's. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a sort of problem we're going to have in the future with yeah. people people having rather different responses to foods and how yeah. they they deal with it. Um, but if I do, I've got to you know, smother it with avocado and mm. olive oil. Um, but uh, no, it's, more, it's still more of a special treat. Uh, and a, but I do one that's absolutely packed with rye, so they're mm. super dense. Um, and so you can't eat much of that in it either. You know, yeah. it's, it's pretty solid, but doesn't give me a, a big sugar rise. Trying to eat less so basic pasta and trying to think of new ways to... Um, replace pasta with other legumes and grains. You know, I used to think, uh, you know, before starting the book, oh, couscous was a healthy grain. Mm. I realized it was pasta balls. Mm. That was a bit of a shock. Um, 
And he naively thought that, you know, Susie couscous salad. Oh, that's really healthy. Yeah. <laughs> no. Anything that cooks <laughs> in like five minutes by just pouring some boiling water on it, you've got to raise your eyebrows. <laughs> well, I think but I love couscous. Don't get me wrong. I, I do enjoy it. But it's, yeah. Well, you can get the giant couscous. Takes a bit longer. Is it Matt Fool? Yes. It? Yeah. Matt Fool is and awesome. I, and I've just discovered a whole gr- whole wheat, sort of whole grain version of that. Which oh, is really nice. nice. Um, so I think... But you're absolutely right. You do learn some of these rules, but if it's too quick, um, it's not going to be good for you. And a bit of time is there because it's actually got more of it to cook and, yeah. and uh, full fibre of that. Yeah. And so, you know, speed isn't everything. And in fact, it's inversely related to it. But yeah, so eating lots of grains, into really into pearl barley now, mm-hmm. um, and unusual stuff. So. Uh, just picking unusual things I've not uh, tried before. I have much less rice than I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that because of the concerns about contamination or for the no, sugar spike? No, it's, it's more for the sugar spike. Uh-huh. And I think there are also more interesting things to eat as well. You know, sometimes it's, yes, you need it to you know, mop up the, the green yeah. curry you know, sauce or something. But um, it, you know, it's, we've overused it. Mm. Um, but uh, having said, I was never going to have, you know, Uncle Ben's or, you know, that palm boiled rice. It turns out that actually nutritionally that's better for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I was, was surprised was a shock. to hear about that. Yeah, that was a shock. But again, that's a side that, you know, not being elitist, but sometimes the cheap uh, one. And that's the exception where, you you know, the microwave does a pretty good job of actually retaining the nutrients. I was, I was quite anti-microwave also before I did this. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, I believed of all this stuff about oh, it damages your food and mm. don't, you don't get any vitamins and it's you know not good for you. Well, it turns out actually, if you use it the right way, you know, it's actually much better for the planet because mm. it doesn't you don't have to heat up your whole oven for the sake of uh, thirty seconds of electricity, yeah. etc. Yeah. And uh, yes, I've reversed some of my rather snobby views on on microwaves. I've been asked to do so many more recipes now without the use of the oven um, and with the use of an air fryer. Although I I still feel that depending on the size of your air fryer, the number of mouths you need to feed uh, and the price of the air fryer, it it only becomes economical after like a good year and a half to two years of using it uh, because the, the saving compared to the oven is is fairly minuscule. We're talking about pennies here, we're not talking about massive saving. So you'd have to use it for a long time before you see any of the savings. But the microwave is something that I tend not to use at all. And I've always had this sort of idea of, if you put like, fresh vegetables and you put that into the microwave, it brings it up to such a high temperature, it neutralizes the vitamin C. Is that is that not correct or? Uh, not that I could find, no. So um, I think, if you overcook anything, yeah, 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 it's killing it off. So I think perhaps the tendency was it's much easier to yeah. overcook food in a microwave, if, particularly if you keep the, the maximum right. temperature. But uh, warming up foods, defrosting foods, mm-hmm. uh, de- you know, I I can find no evidence that the microwave had any detrimental effects. So I think we're there was a sort of snobby anti-microwave mm-hmm. movement. Um, you know, Chef Mike, they used to call it in those cheap restaurants, didn't they? Yeah. Give it to Chef Mike, he'll do it. Yeah. Um, was because it was used often in connection with ready meals and yeah. things like that. But I think, you know, a microwaved 
you know, baked potato or, you know, the, some of these things that in much more efficient than doing it any other way. And uh, yeah, from, from frozen. Yeah, which, so yeah, so there's, there's things that I think we just need to reevaluate what our culture had pointed us in the wrong direction. And, mm. you know, there you go, Uncle, back away the Uncle Ben's rice, who'd know it'd be a fast, good for the planet, you know, and actually nutritionally good for you. Is the reason why it's better nutritionally because of the preparation method that the manufacturers have? No, nothing special with the manufacturers. I'm just picking that one as a, this, these, the long, you know, the oh, long the, rice. The great, oh, okay, it's yeah. the fact that they parboil it. Uh-huh. So I think 50% of the world's rice is parboiled. Mm-hmm. So that apparently, so, you know, as a way of storing it, they sort of half cook it. Mm. And the way they do it actually locks in the nutrients. Whereas if you have you know, more typical Asian rice, it's not locked in. Uh, and, you know, it has less fiber mm. and less nutrients. And um, I think more of the sugars, you know, they tend to be starchier anyway. So mm. you get more of the sugars from them. It shouldn't be about the rice anyway. It's, you know, we should be having less rice and more of the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. The uh, diversity, the rainbow. Yeah, exactly. It, it's moving away from the big, massive amounts of pasta, massive amounts of rice, and focusing on the other stuff. Yeah. The other interesting plants and sources. But yeah, so lots of things that are changing. And, and I hope, you know, it will continue to change because I think it will be dull if um, we didn't change our views and um, you know uh, I'm always getting questioned my views on things like vitamin D and whatever which yeah. seems to be the hottest uh, I'm, I'm enemy number one there are some people's you know, absolutely love vitamin D you know that uh, whatever you say it's like it's, it's like their favorite film star you know, yeah you yeah can, yeah you just can't kill it off <laughs> Yeah, we, we know your views on vitamin D, and uh, well, it's it, it, do you, you don't supplement with anything? I'm assuming there's no, no supplements in your cabinet that you recommend, or no, um, you know. And I recently, so just doing my chapter on mushrooms, I mm. discovered you know that your mushrooms can give you in winter months a really good way of getting your vitamin D, mm. and uh, you know if either you get the vitamin D, you know, ones from the supermarkets or you just stick them on your in your windows sill for you know a, a day and uh, they'll do the business just like your skin because they're more like humans than they are plants yeah yeah um fascinating aren't they mushrooms? i found mushrooms i did knew very little about them uh-huh. and i did quite a bit of reading about it and super exciting uh you know they've got lots of protein in them all the essential amino acids and um you store them dried forever and have this huge effect on uh, interacting with cancer. Mm. Um, and I was always told to ridicule this idea that their foods, you know, could have an effect on cancer. But the you know, randomized trials now showing as an adjunct, which means you add it to chemotherapy, mm. increase survival and reduce the side effects of that chemotherapy in, you know, significant summary you know summary data was that within ke- uh, patients undergoing chemotherapy or immunotherapy that's chemotherapy okay the immunotherapy uh, data so chemotherapy is trying to kill all the cells uh-huh. and clearly the mushrooms are either helping you kill the cells or they're c- keeping your own cells alive uh-huh. they're clearly having an effect on the immune system in immunotherapy 
which is used for things like melanoma or prostate or kidneys, so solid tumors, you are trying to get the body to, uh, the immune system to kill the cancer. And so the, uh, what you're trying to do is boost the immune system. Mm -hmm. And that's where we show that generally diets, like Mediterranean diets, have been shown to help build up your gut microbes so they have more, they can help the immune system uh, attack the cancers. And both of those ideas are now firmly embedded in oncology units now that you know are doing the research. Not everywhere. Yeah. And it hasn't gone into mainstream. I don't think most um, most doctors know about it. But I was amazed how strong the evidence is about uh, these mushrooms. And certainly, if I was you know, having chemotherapy or recommending patients with it, I'd get every type of mushroom yeah. I could every week because, you know, important differences between, you know, your survival mm. could depend on it. And we need to harness what those things are. And we don't know. And so, again, it's another reason to have the whole plant and not some guru's decision that there's this one chemical out of a thousand that yeah. is doing the business. Yeah, it's not like we're going to... Why know, gamble? Uh, just, uh, just eat them all. And each and each one of them has a slight has different properties, as we know from all the psychedelic yeah mushroom stuff yeah, yeah. You know, this microdosing and things so yeah i love mushrooms so i try and have many more mushrooms than i used to so i'm trying mean, two or three times a week are there particular types of mushrooms that have been looked at in particular or is it just mushrooms in general so all the different varieties portobello field shiitake chaga the ones that have had most research done on them have usually had been backing by that producer to, to oh, okay. make them so yeah um I don't think they've done much comparisons mm -hmm. between the different types. So, you know, you've got these trendy ones like Lion's Mane yeah. and, uh, and Shiitake that um, it does depend which country it came from. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we really know uh, at the moment. So I think the idea is you know, have whatever mushrooms around you at the time, mm -hmm. try and have them seasonally, but also realize that buy them when they're really cheap and dry them out and, and keep them, you know, they rehydrate really well yeah and you still get all those amazing flavors and uh, we tend not to do that much in this country but you know i know the italians do that a lot don't they they're yeah, dried they porcini dry mushrooms yeah. and, and the spanish have them all the, you know so there's a big mediterranean tradition of doing this yeah they're fantastic as well the flavor of those are, are wonderful I always we always have like um dried wild mushrooms that we add to soups and ramen and that kind of stuff it just has a wonderful umami flavor and i think it's important for people to look out for companies that will try and isolate a certain element of mushrooms like the ergothionine or a particular type of prebiotic and say this is the reason why it's having a beneficial effect in people undergoing chemotherapy whereas from everything that we've discussed today it's really about you know that food matrix and looking at trying to get as much whole products into your diet as possible because we don't really know what is having the desirable effect well, you know you know your food's trendy when you start seeing there's mushroom coffee and yeah, mushroom yeah. tea. Yeah. And you think, well, what's next? You know, sort of mushroom vodka and, yeah. uh, you know, sort of uh, yeah. mushroom kombucha. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's like, uh, but, you know, you don't need to have this fancy stuff. Yeah. They're all around you. You know, is actually one part of our cup, you know, the Sunday fry up. Um, you know, at least the mushrooms yeah. are going to be good for you. you yeah. know? <laughs>
<laughs> as you were talking about like when when a supplement becomes or when does a food become a supplement and that sort of spectrum do you see a future where potentially maybe even in healthcare environments people could be given dehydrated versions of the whole food as a quick and convenient option to consume as part of a of a treatment pathway i do and i think uh, you know, we mustn't be too snobby and elitist to say, oh, no, you've got to get the latest fresh ones. Mm. You know, all the studies show that a lot of these freeze-dried products are actually really good and rehydrate and give you pretty much the same nutrients as the fresh ones. Sometimes, you know, better because they were picked and dried without that time delay before it actually got to your greengrocers and that got, got to you. Mm. Uh, so I think... You know, the next few years are going to show our vocabulary around, you know, supplements, additives changing mm. as, you know, we've seen with these, you know, food substitute drinks yeah. and shots and sort of boost immune booster shots. Now, you know, at the moment, those, those are highly chemical yeah. derived. They're not really from... Uh, whole plants and things, but I am starting to see people sending me samples and things of, you know, lots of freeze-dried plants mm. in mixtures that if it is the whole plant and it doesn't have lots of other chemicals to it, they should be classed in a, in a, in a different category. Yeah. And I think we don't know quite know what to call them yet. Yeah. Uh, but I think we do need to do some more research with them because it could be that you know, where we don't get these effects with any of these individual supplements for the reasons we've talked about or very dubious results. But by, can, by freeze drying the whole thing, you're getting still hundreds of those chemicals. Yeah. And if you get enough of it, and that's the other sort of question here, well, hmm, you know, can you get enough of it to make a difference? Yes. And if we get those doses right, then I think, yeah, this is a really whole new area of, of food. And if we make it look like real food, yeah. um, or it is not so finely ground that it could be anything like talcum powder, mm. um, then I think it's something. Because, you know, we still eat, like, I'm sure you've got your bottle of mixed nuts and seeds, and when it's finished at the end, you've got a fine powder. Yeah, the dust. <laughs> That you know, you can still pour the dust on, and that'll be useful. So, yeah. in a way, we don't want to be too picky and say no. You know, it has to be the whole food. Yeah. 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 So I think, and also to make it widely available to everybody, out of season when people are travelling. Mm. You know, if you're a busy doctor, you know, touring places with food deserts. Mm. You know, what can you do? And I think I'm starting to see, you know, portable kombuchas. Uh, that you just have to hydrate. Uh, uh, interesting. Uh, and all these other, these other, you know, baobab powders and things like this, you can rehydrate yeah. and things like that. So I think we do need to look at it, but also be a bit suspicious that if we don't know exactly how it's made, we should question it and make sure they're not adding the same things that we've been trying to avoid, the other chemicals, the emulsifiers, totally. the sweeteners, yeah, yeah, all this other stuff that we really should be saying, you know, no more. That's, um, I'm really it. interested in this area. I think if there was the option to, in addition to my regular diet, have 
a dehydrated uh, berry, a dehydrated, uh, no, let's say kale, uh, which is the equivalent of a portion each in a in a drink or in a powder that I can rehydrate or maybe added to um, if it was flavorless a, a type of passata that I would make you know from scratch just to boost sort of the polyphenol value of the meal uh, I think that could that could work and that could be an attractive option just to improve the diversity of the polyphenols that you're consuming and ergo have an effect hopefully on microbes and it's probably a, a, an easy experiment that you could do to, to test what the effect of that would be. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly test the polyphenol counts on it. Um, and, you know, uh, but to do those clinical studies would be actually quite hard because mm. you're, what you're giving is quite a small amount on top of something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think you'd have to do a lot of it based on what you thought those ingredients have been shown to work in other scenarios. Therefore, it's in addition to your your main meal. And I think we don't we don't want to go back to recreating Huel mm. um, and and realize this is, you know, people come up to me and said, oh, you know, I'm traveling a lot. You know, my thirty plants a week rule is really irritating. You know, at certain times <laughs> on holiday or whatever, I'd love to be able to just you know sprinkle some magic um, potion over things and, and hit the target. Yeah, yeah. So I think. We do realize that, you know, in this world, people are in different situations, environments, work, night shifts, whatever. I think we, we ought to be more inclusive and without being too snobby to say, well, it's not real food. Yeah. yeah. And where does it, because I think, you know, we've discussed lots of examples from, you know, dried porcini, which costs yeah. a fortune. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, really cheap, um, who knows, you know, dried milk powder or something yeah. that isn't it I think well you know where does it where, yeah exactly where do you draw that line mm. so I think it's about how it's done but my looking at freeze drying it looks a pretty you know healthy way of um, doing stuff so I think we'll see more of that in the future so maybe we should start a company yeah maybe I reckon that would be pretty <laughs> pretty interesting <laughs> you heard it here first uh, Tim this has been great uh, I, I love the book I love what you're up to um, how's it been uh, for you going on this journey I mean now your your focus is on the book the the Zoe company and all the other incredible opportunities I mean it's, it's very different to the day-to-day -day, maybe 10-15 years ago right how's the transition been well yeah it, it's um, it's fitted by personality because you know I've been a number of different types of doctor in my time yeah. so general physician rheumatologist epidemiologist, geneticist, epigeneticist, whatever. So I like to change, but what's really exciting at the moment is rather than fixating on writing another 50 papers, mm. which are each read by you know, 500 people, mm. I can you know, get, talk to millions of people through this new medium and you know, have a much bigger impact, I think, on on health. And that's super exciting to me. And and also the discoveries we've been making in science, because of the company Zoe, we can translate that immediately, yeah. either through their nutritional product or through the Zoe uh, Health app, the, the Zoe Health study, which we haven't discussed, but, you know, we can do all the things we talk about, about lifestyle. You've got an idea about, you know, improving someone's lifestyle. Mm -hmm. 
you know, meditate standing on one foot for, for five minutes, you know, we've got a, a study of half a million people that can do that and mm. work out whether that works or not. Mm. And so the ability to take uh, the science, choose what science is, do these projects, do it in like super fast time, and then roll it out either as a, a product or as an intervention, I think it's just so exciting. So yeah. um, I'm just incredibly lucky. And that's that's why, you know, I haven't given up and uh, just not just sitting on a beach. This is, you know, most exciting period of my life. Yeah. I can't think of anything worse sitting on a beach and not doing much. I, I think I'm always going to be in the kitchen or doing something creative. And I think, uh, I think you're the same. Absolutely. Yes. So I'm sure we'll meet again. Definitely. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode with Professor Tim. Remember, you can get Foods for Life wherever good books are sold online and in store. And do subscribe to my newsletter, Eat, Listen, Read. Every single week, I send you something to eat, something to listen to, something to read, something that will hopefully put a smile on your face. Hopefully, just like this podcast. Make sure you check it out on YouTube as well if you want to watch me and Professor Tim. Uh, And I'm sure we will do a part two soon when we talk a lot more about the other elements of food in his book and maybe a few recipes as well. I'll catch you here next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.